um, John chapter 6, I think will be a more useful text for us to look through this morning. You may keep your finger in 2 Corinthians. We perhaps will be there at a later point. But for our purposes this morning, let me invite you to turn to a familiar passage, most likely, John chapter 6. And we'll begin our reading in verse 25. John 6, 25, we find these words. And when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you were looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom he has sent. And so they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give us that we can see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. And Jesus declared to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall not lose one of all that he has given to me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. Now we'll raise him up on the last day. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Help it make sense. Clear up my muddled mind and loosen my tongue so that this sinful man might proclaim words of life and truth. Father, remove from us the stain and guilt of sin that clogs our ears. And may your spirit speak this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to tell you a story this morning, and up front I want to let you know that I've changed perhaps some of the names to protect the guilty. That's one caveat I'd need to share with you. The second one is, for once in these stories that I tell, I'm not an active participant. Normally, I am the antagonizer in my stories. My wife would tell you that uh, I was the troublemaker in my family growing up. But in this one isolated incident, I happen not to be the guilty party. So, with those understandings, this is the story I want to share with you. I have a vivid memory 
of being about 12 years old and in attendance at a birthday party. And there was a typical birthday party scene when you were 12 years old. There's a bunch of boys running around, not that many girls. And the highlight of this particular party was that the grandparents of the birthday boy were going to make an appearance. The grandparents lived a long way away, and it had only been on a handful of occasions that they had even spent a significant amount of time together, a card at Christmas, typically a card on the birthdays, but this year was going to be different. This year, Grandma and Grandpa are making the trip about seven and a half hours to be in attendance at their grandson's birthday party. And so the event comes, and Grandma and Grandpa arrive, and they arrive with a, with a special gift, something that this young man's grandfather had spent a significant amount of time creating and preparing. A gift that he had hoped to be able to give to his grandson that would be cherished and prized as this young man grew up into adulthood. Something perhaps even that after the party they could enjoy together. And so the day comes, it's time for the presents, everything is unwrapped, and the grandfather presents his grandson with this gift. Grandson takes it and opens it and looks inside and receives the gift pleasantly. But it's clear from how quickly he moved on to the next thing that he had not absorbed the full value and weight of what had been presented to him. And in fact, had for the most part ignored his grandfather as he had opened the gift. And the party carried on, and the young man went out and played with all the things that he had received. Before long, the party had ended, and it had time for his grandfather and his grandmother to pack up and return back home. And his grandparents left with heavy hearts because this thing, this item, this gift that was given had really been squandered, had really failed to be appreciated. But that wasn't really the pain of the situation. The greater pain, as the grandfather would tell later, was the lack of fellowship and enjoyment that he had hoped to have with his grandson through the giving of this gift. think the grandfather felt? Can you, can you find yourself in that situation? Hold, hold that feeling in your heart for a minute. Just, just put it in there and hold on to it. John Piper wrote a book called God is the Gospel. And in this book, he poses this question. He says, for a moment, imagine heaven. That's an easy thing. For a moment, picture heaven. 
all the things that you've heard, all the stories that you've been told by your family and by your pastor, the things you've read in Scripture, a place of no more pain, a place of no more sorrow, a place where fear has, has been vanquished, a place that contains all of your favorite foods, all of your favorite drink, all of your loved ones who have been lost, a place where we will find fellowship with them and be restored and reunited, a place of eternal satisfaction and fulfillment. Imagine this place and answer this question. Could you be happy there? Could you be happy there if Christ weren't present in the midst? No pain, no sorrow, freedom from fear, great food, great drink, great friends, great fellowship, but no Jesus. This is the question that Piper asked, or to state it better, that you could have all of those things. You could live eternally in a place that contains such things, or you could be present in eternity with Christ. Which do you choose? We're in church, so it's a little easier to give the right answer. Um, but I think if you caught us outside of this building, maybe Wednesday, 1 o'clock, our answer might be a little different. That mine would be. I'm not so sure in some of my least spiritual moments if I wouldn't say, you know, I might take might take the first option. My feeling is I'm probably not alone because the truth is that as a product of the way that we have lived our lives, because we live in a sensory absorbed world, our tendency so often is to become so enamored by the gifts that come along with our salvation that we neglect the giver of the gifts. I think that's the point that Piper is driving at here. His point is that as a product of our salvation, this over and abundance of love and joy and peace and fellowship and all of the things that get poured down into our life, when we think about what it means to have heaven, all of these things are subsidiary to the first and highest gift of our salvation which is Jesus himself, which is the giver of the gift. Now, the great thing is that there's really no choice to be made for those of us who are in Christ, right? I mean, we, we get both. But what I want us to think about just briefly this morning is to begin to think through and order in our minds what is of first priority when we think about what it means to be saved to be given this gift, what the value of that gift is. This is what's happening in John chapter 6. If you're familiar with the story and what's gone on, Jesus has begun his ministry. In fact, just before the section we read, he has had this great time of, of, of teaching and ministry and, and people's lives are being changed. In fact, so much so that he has to kind of get away. And so 
his sends his disciples out on the boat and he comes out walking to them and they land on the other side and that's where our story picks up. The people who were being ministered to, who had been fed, are still hungry. And they pursue Jesus to the other side of the lake for the purpose, not necessarily of learning more about the kingdom, of learning more about what this salvation might mean, but because they had had their fill and wanted more. Their stomachs had been satisfied. They had become enamored with this gift more so than the giver. And our natural tendency, I think, when we read these stories that are contained in the scriptures is to look at them and wag our finger. Oh, guys, you're missing it. Don't you, don't you see the big picture of what he's doing here? He fed you. And now he is enabling and giving to you more than just food for your stomach, but food for your souls. This, this you know, of course... This is one of the great I am statements that John's gospel contains. In fact, I think as as I kind of outline it, the way I see it being built around these seven I am statements of Jesus in which Jesus proclaims himself to be various things. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. He states all these things. And, of course, I uh, I think maybe even in some other opportunity I've had to share with you, I've kind of explained a little bit about what that means, what those... I am statements mean that they're far more than just a declaration of Jesus' particular um, uh, action or characteristic that he's trying to communicate to them, but really a, a statement of his divinity. This recalling back to Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush where Moses is fearful and worried and he asks God his name and he proclaims to him his name as I am that I am. And in the Greek structure of this in John chapter 6, verse 35, when Jesus declares to him that I am the bread of life, in, in the original, the original Greek, it's, it's actually stated twice. Literally, it's read, I am, I am the bread of life, underscoring this divine nature, what he's saying. But, but the, the larger picture here for our concern is that Jesus, I think, is trying to drive home an attitude that needs to be adjusted. We look at these guys and we wag our fingers. And so often we're guilty of the same thing. Listen, I don't know about you, but I get frustrated. I get frustrated when I see people who don't love the Lord, who don't honor Him, who have no concern for His word or His ways, prosper and succeed. I get frustrated at that. I know I shouldn't. But I mistakenly think that because I try to follow the rules that I should somehow have it easier. You know, and that's just wrong. It just is. Because in reality, I'm no different. I value things that are disproportionate with what the Father says I should value. And when we talk about what it means to put a first priority, the giver of our salvation as opposed to this gift of salvation. It's this attitude that we need to begin to change. He says to them, I am the bread of life. And I think one of the neat things about bread is that it's available, it's common, it's open to all. 
So how do we go about changing this thing? How do we go about redefining the things that have to be a first priority? Well, I think the first, I'm going to just give you two, two things. I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to recognize. We have to recognize what is disproportionately wrong. What you and I have to do if we want to begin to be unlike the child in the front of the story, in the beginning story, and more like what Jesus is calling us to be, we have to learn that Jesus and my relationship with Jesus have got to become more valuable to me than the benefits that come along with that relationship. In two weeks, I will have my 10-year wedding anniversary. And that's kind of a mind-blowing thing to me. I never, (laughs) you know, I never thought that a woman could be convinced to live with me that long because I'm difficult. And when I got married, you know what? I didn't marry a cook. I didn't marry a housekeeper. I may have thought that in the beginning. Had to have some of those attitudes adjusted. But I didn't marry a cook or a housekeeper or or someone to raise our daughter. Those were things that came along with this new relationship. But what I sought after first was a friend, was someone to share my life with, was someone to love me and to be loved by me. And the other things, as a part of my relationship, they came in. They were roles that were fulfilled secondary to our first role, which is to love and to care for and to cherish one another. And I'd suggest to you that in our relationship with Jesus, the same thing has to be said. When we marry Jesus, I don't know what that looked like in your life. You you walk the aisle, you raise a hand, you met with the preacher, you were confirmed, you went through and met with the... I don't know what that looked like for you, but when you married Jesus, what you got first was Jesus. What you got first was an invitation into an ongoing, everlasting, seamless, abiding existence with the king and author of the universe. That's what you got first. And as a product of that, you were saved. You were justified. You were declared righteous. You were sanctified. We can attach any of the big words of church that we want to you know, squeeze into that. But in the very base Nature, what you got was a relationship. What you got was a connection with the one who has loved you for eternity. And it's that relationship and not the benefits of that relationship that have to begin to resonate within our hearts. You see, the real gift of the gospel is not heaven It's not eternal life. The highest gift of the gospel is fellowship with God through His Son, Jesus. Look at verse 53 in chapter 6. Of course, as the people hear this, they begin to grumble. And in typical Jesus fashion, He doesn't let them off the hook. And in verse 53, He says, I tell you this, listen... Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. 
And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. And whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. And at this point, their ears have got to be going crazy. Because this man is apparently crazy. But we know what he's talking about, right? Our pastor has taught us about this. He's talking about the fellowship that comes through the shed blood that he would, in just a few chapters, undergo. He's talking about full fellowship. Full fellowship that can happen as a result of this salvation. That's the gift of the gospel. It is the gift of God himself to his people that makes the good news good. Let me say that again. It is the gift of God himself to his people that makes the good news good. Anything else or to use our salvation in some other way is to use it wrongly. The first thing we have to do is we have to recognize. We have to recognize the value in this relationship, the priority in this relationship. And the second thing we have to do is we have to learn to rest in him. Recognizing is, is a, it's maybe a little bit easier. What does it mean to rest in him? When you read John 6, I think it's easy to see ourselves as kind of passive players in our salvation. You know, we hear in John 6 again and again that, um, you know, I've come to do the will of my Father it's his will that I should lose none of him that is given me. No one can come to the Father unless he is drawn to me. It's easy to hear ourselves as having a passive role in this. And while it's true that God is the author, he is the initiator, he is the fulfiller of our salvation, he is the God who always moves first, who moves and acts and draws you and I to himself. While all those things is true, we are not a passive player. We have a role that we fulfill in this. We submit to his authority. We obey his commands. And we learn to rest. Listen to verse 43. He says, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets that all will be taught by God. And everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him, they come to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God, and only he has excuse me, and only he has seen the Father. Do you know why we you know why we look to the gifts instead of the giver so often? I, I, I sat with this and I thought about it and I rolled it over in my mind again and again this week as I was trying to find some remedy. And this is the only thing I could come up with as I searched the scriptures, as I prayed to the Father. This is, you know why we look to the gifts instead of the giver so often? Because I think we mistakenly think that whatever it is that we desire is going to be what makes us happy. Is that true for you? Whatever it is that we 
think will make us happy. Whatever this thing is that we desire, that we long after, that we want, a new job, a bigger house, more money, on the negative side, on the plus side, um, freedom from illness, forget a better job, any job, (laughs) even things that in and of themselves are good. See, we long for these kind of things and we think that a desire for these things is ultimately going to be what brings us happiness. I think happiness has become our highest pursuit. Watch TV. That's what the commercials are selling to you. That product X, Y, and Z is going to be what makes you happy. And listen, friends, I am guilty as charged. I realize that I have an addiction. Praise Jesus, it is not the addiction that has plagued so much of my family. My addiction is to stuff. I, I like stuff. I want more stuff. More and more stuff. I, I've got tons of stuff. I need new stuff to replace the stuff that I have. I have this addiction to stuff because I think that stuff will make me happy. And it does. Until the next new stuff comes and then I want that. It's a paralyzing cycle. But happiness has become my highest pursuit. And here's the funny thing about happiness. You rarely have any control over whether or not you're happy. Have you ever thought about that? You rarely have any control over whether or not you're happy. Because happiness is always dictated by external circumstances. Happiness is dependent upon other people and other circumstances. I will be happy if I get the new thing. If someone does this, if something at work happens, then I'll be happy. Happiness is different from joy. Happiness is dictated by outside circumstances. Joy comes from inside. Joy is not dependent upon outside circumstances. This is why you have people, and you have people in your life, who no matter what the circumstances, are filled with joy. They're the most annoying people ever. I I have friends like this who do not seem to be affected by the things falling apart in their life. And I I am at both times repulsed by them because I see in them something I so desperately want for myself and I'm clueless as to how they've been able to achieve this. It's that same conflict I read when I read Philippians chapter 4. Have you ever read Philippians chapter 4? I want some of what Paul has. I've learned to be content in every circumstance. Really? Really? Are you going to write about that later? Because, you know, and in fact, he does. He'd written about it in chapters 1 through 3 if you, if you really begin to move through that, that book in Philippians. It's because he's found the secret of joy. He's found the secret of joy. Joy comes from the inside. Joy comes from having peace. And peace comes from learning to rest in Jesus. Joy comes from peace. Peace comes from being able to rest in Jesus and being concerned with only what Jesus thinks about you. Not a deeper need for more stuff, not a deeper need for a change in circumstances, not a deeper need for this or that, but comes from a place where Jesus and Jesus alone is the one 
who dictates what we think about ourselves and where we are. It's learning to treasure not the gifts that we've been given, but the giver of the gift. And so that when the giver gives the gift, the celebration is not in what is given, but the celebration is to whom? It's the one who gave it. It's what my friend's grandfather was wanting. He didn't, he didn't care that he had spent hours turning this baseball bat on a lathe, that he had sanded it down to perfection, that he had polished and varnished it to this beautiful piece of wood. The value wasn't in the gift. The value is in what the gift was representing and who it was given by. How do we rest? Uh, I, you know, how do we rest? I, I, three things, very simply. I think we learn to rest in the presence of Jesus when we continue to put ourselves in his presence. My instinct is to flee. My instinct is to run when I'm afraid, to be fearful. When I feel the world collapsing in, when I feel this expression of angst, my, my tendency is to run, to not go to the place where I know I can find freedom and forgiveness and rest and peace. But we have to be diligent to place ourselves in the presence of the Father again and again and again and resist that instinct to run. We have to put ourselves in his presence. I think the second thing that we have to do is we have to ask him to help us change. I was raised in the church. And while I highly recommend it, it does difficult things to you. And maybe it's just a product of growing up in a church that wasn't that great. But I have always in my life felt such a fear of expression, expressing any weakness, any um, glimpse into my life that might be seen as a crack or a chink in my armor. And so you get really good when you are a kid in a bad church growing up uh, where you don't feel like you can express any vulnerability that you can kind of glaze over. And I got really good at that. And, and what happens is you get so used to doing that with people that you begin to do that with God as well. And I don't want to show him any of my chinks. I don't want to admit that, you know what, God, right now I really don't want you that much. I want all these other things. Now, I may not be able to express that to him vocally, but that's what I'm saying by the way I'm living my life because I'm fleeing from his presence. And one of the most powerful things that someone has said to me was to encourage me to have the freedom to be honest with my Father, my Heavenly Father. And if my prayer can't be, God, I want more of you, to at least make my prayer, I want to want more of you. I want to want more of you. I, I don't know if maybe you, you have any of those same things going on in your life, those same 
hesitations or tendencies, but I would encourage you the same thing. You know, it's okay. It's okay to go to God and say, you know what, I want to want more of you. I know that it's not where it needs to be now, our relationship. I've let it falter and fail. You've been faithful. I have not. And I want to want more of you. We go to his presence again and again. We ask him for the courage to help us change. And then we begin thirdly and finally to remind ourselves of his story. He says it. He says it here. We've read it. I will lose none of all that he has given me. Everyone who listens will come to me. I challenge you. Go to the scriptures. Go to the gospels. Read the stories of Jesus and come back to me with a story where he turned someone away who desperately wanted more of him, who was willing and honest enough to ask him, I want to want more of you. I don't think you can find it. Because the promise of the scriptures is that for each and every one of us who would repent, who would turn and flee to Jesus, find rest, find peace, find the joy not dictated by external circumstances. Let's pray. And let's ask God to give us this peace that we need. Father, you are uh, exceedingly good and patient. You do not deal with us as our sins deserve, but instead... You extend mercy and peace and grace. And I stand here this morning echoing Paul's sentiment of being the chief of all sinners. And and yet, Lord, you have given grace even to a person like me with a stuff addiction, with a fearful heart, with one who flees from your presence instead of to it. And you have loved me and drawn me back again and again and again. And so it's with a first-hand knowledge that I can invite all of us here to go and flee to Christ where we find our hope, our redemption, our peace, Father, meet us where we are, but draw us closer to you. Father, we love you. We give you thanks for what you will do in advance in our lives, trusting and holding on to the promise of Scripture that you lose none that the Father has given you. In Christ's name, amen. amen. We have a closing hymn we'll use to celebrate what God has done for us. Number 98 in our hymnal. Now thank we all our God. Let's stand, let's sing, let's rejoice as we close our service this morning.